afternoon, everybody, and uh, that's, a bit, that's a bit premature. Um, thank you for joining us. My name is Jamie Watt. I'm the executive chairman of Navigator and a long, long, long ago past president of the uh, Canadian Club of Toronto. It's a good thing they keep everybody's name on because otherwise my name would have been uh, kicked off that uh, folder you get at lunch. Um, but I wanted to welcome uh, you here to this place, our place, but of course a place where people have been gathering for millennia, some known to us and many of course unknown to us. But we do know that people that have been gathering here have been doing just what we're doing tonight. Renewing friendships, sharing some food, and I can see Dale, some wine. Um, but also um, learning about differences and learning about living with differences, and they've been doing exactly what we are going to do tonight. And for that, um, you know, we are grateful, and I, I think sometimes these land acknowledgements have become about as performative as Katz's attempt at bilingualism at the airport when they've made hello, bonjour, one word. Um, we uh, actually try to, uh, do better than that at Navigator. Um, we are on the land, of course, covered by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Treaty, and we work very hard to live by the principles of that treaty, uh, take what we need, make sure there's something fresh someone else, and leave nothing behind. And for that, and for the teachings of learning how to live together and live with differences and steward our lands, we say miigwech. Today, um, I'm very, very pleased to welcome just a whole bunch of awesome Tainomi Banks, uh, who I can't be more excited to have here with us. But I do have to um, put a, another twist to the usual enthusiastic endorsement you would have for such a performance at Pride. And you know, we have to remember what Nemi said, which was first they came for the communist, and there wasn't a communist, so I said nothing. And then they came for the socialist, and I wasn't a socialist, and I said nothing. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I wasn't a trade unionist, so I said nothing. Then I came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so I said nothing. And then they came for me, and there was no one to say anything. And this nonsense, this horseshit that is going on in the United States, in Florida, Tennessee, and whatever, is not funny, and it, we cannot let it go unacknowledged. So I think drag this year, in addition to being very entertaining and fun, we have to acknowledge there's a political aspect to it. And so I would ask you to welcome her tonight with enthusiasm for an amazing performance, but also for the fact that we have to draw a line in the stand and say, this has got to stop. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Give a fantastic welcome to Naomi Banks.
I hate you. <laughs> what did we work? What do you used to work? What is it? Aldo. Buffalo. No, I was Buffalo jeans too. Yes, honey. Aldo shoes? <laughs> I would never. No, yeah, we used to pick Greentown Center. Yeah. 
before I knew it, you know? I knew I was gay, but before I knew it was fabulous. You know? Oh my gosh, how is everyone doing? Yes, you have a new president. Yes, where is he? Where is it? That's the man I hugged, right? Oh, anyway, so um, thank you for having me here. <laughs> I should have got notes before this, so I don't care. Uh, but I love you guys. I hope you're having fun. I have two more numbers. Is that okay? Uh, you got to have fun. All right, the next number, like that's like club. So for my gays here, like you know, just mm, let me see a little bit more, okay? <laughs> just a tinge more, okay? I know you're conservative, but like, come on. <laughs> like my penis is in my stomach. You guys are fine. <laughs> All right, play the next track. Thank you.
So this whole time, <laughs> sabotage. <laughs> like, you knew I needed this the whole time. <laughs> It's Drag Race right now, right? Oh my gosh. I know, I should talk about, you know what? Invite me again, we'll talk about my life next time. Because you only pay me enough to do two steps, so. So we're gonna do that, all right? Thank you so much. Do you wanna come get this? I'm ready. What's your name? What's your name? 
What's your name? Thanks, Riley. Why is the volume mute on this? Can you hear me, everyone? That's it. Riley, thank you for running back and forth. That's the kind of person I need on my team. I think I'm Beyonce. I do think I'm Beyonce, and I need people running, right? Uh, next time I come here, we're going to get Beyonce fans, okay? Like, like real fans, the op automatic ones, not the... Those fans are crazy ones, right? Where they, oh my God, slay it, slay it. I don't need an ad. I need to be actually cooled off. I want to say thank you so much for having me here at the Canadian Club. And whoever the new president is, I'm amazing to you. I don't, I don't know. Wait, are you the ex? And then where's the new? You, Joe, hi. Oh my God, did you see what I did for you? Think about me, okay? Because I need things sponsored this year, honey. Okay? It'll look good on some voting scheme, whatever you're doing, okay? Okay, honestly, I, everyone, I am Tainomi Banks. Please follow me because I'm the one and only. And I love you guys. I'm going to come back when I dry off. Maybe a drink. Yeah, a quick drink, right? I love you guys. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for holding that. What's your name? What's your name? What? Oh, what? I'm just joking. I heard you. I love you. Thank you so much. Thank you for dancing with me. Okay, Toto, we are not at the Pickering Town Center anymore. <laughs> wow. Um, good evening. My name is Tanya Van Beeson. I'm a proud executive member of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and I'm so delighted to host this very special event and to welcome all of you. So thank you for being here. Uh, amazing gathering, beautiful venue, wonderful opener. Um, thank you, Tainomi Banks. And Jamie, thank you. Where are you? Are you here in the room? Working. He's working. Okay, well, I will just say thank you to Jamie Watt for his continued leadership and generosity uh, as our host for this event, which he has done year over year. His impact on the club is felt deeply by all of us. He has, as he indicated, he was part of the executive of the Canadian Club, and, and so we're, we're very thankful to be here tonight. I must have done something very wrong in my life to be a speaker after Jamie Watt and Tainomi Banks. Um, Tainomi reminds us of why this is so important and so beautiful and so fun and why the world needs more drag. Um, I would like to thank our sponsors. First of all, TD and my partner in crime, Scott Belton, who is not here, but he was the one who um, made the Tainomi Banks performance possible. So thank you very much to TD. Um, and then I would also like to thank the Canadian Bankers Association, who is represented by three people here today, who have been our season sponsor and have been with us throughout all of our events. Um, and it's been a wonderful partnership, so thank you, Anthony, to you and your team. And then Canada's Forest Trust has been with us this season as well, partnering with the Canadian Club to help us reduce our carbon footprint. And I think today the air in Toronto will remind us of why that is so important. Okay, it's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. So Shabani Ahuja, who you now know either worked at Buffalo Jeans or Aldo in the Pickering Town Center, but um, she's VP and Executive Product Owner Customer Engagement at TD. 
Shabani is, and I would really encourage all of you to speak to our panelists after, but I will give a brief overview. So Shabani is a global executive. She has extensive experience working across a whole range of disciplines and geographies, um, which include, by the way, digital HR, IT, finance, actuarial, treasury, audit, product development, and internal business consulting. So for those of you who've done very little with your careers, <laughs> you may want to talk to her. Um, in her current role at TD, Shabani leads a team of digital professionals who are responsible for actually recreating, reinventing, reimagining the digital experience that all uh, TD customers, hopefully many of you are TD customers, have at the bank. And then she also fulfills a number of other roles, including being part of TD's LGBTQ uh, Executive Steering Committee. She is co-chair of TD's LGBTQ2S+, I should have mentioned that first, Women's Strategy, and then she's also a member of TD's Black Experience Executive Steering Committee, which I clarified is their ERG, BRG, for um, Black employees at TD. And then finally, she's a member of the Canadian Women's Foundation Annual Grants Committee. She has worked not only in Canada, but also in Hong Kong and the Philippines, and several of our, our speakers today have an international perspective, which I think just brings more um, to the fabric of our conversation. Michael Bach, who's standing at the back of the room, recognized thought leader and subject matter expert in the area of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. He's the founder of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, CCDI, as well as CCDI Consulting and Pride at Work Canada. Michael's worked professionally in the areas of inclusion, equity, diversity, and accessibility for over 20 years. And over the course of his career, he has been recognized in many different ways, including as uh, one of CIO View's 10 most influential DEI leaders. He was a Catalyst Canada Honours Champion. And he was also an Inspire Award, uh, or received the Inspire Award as LGBTQ Person of the Year. And I believe you actually were awarded something like this week that I saw online, but I'll let you discuss that. Um, he's written two books, 2020, Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right, which is a Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, and Amazon bestseller. And then a more recent book called Alphabet Soup, The, the, the Essential Guide. Oh, someone is holding up said book. Thank you. Uh, Alphabet Soup is the Alphabet Soup, the Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion is the second book, and that was released in March of 2022. And Michael is also a former director of the Canadian Club. Welcome, Michael. And then Aline Danji, who we are very fortunate to have here today because he attempted over a nine-hour period to fly from New York to Toronto today and did finally make it because of the air quality in both cities. So thank you for being here. Chief People Officer and EVP at Equinox. Equinox or Equinox? Equinox. Okay. <laughs> Got it right the first one. So Aleem, very interesting background, brings over 25 years of global leadership experience, um, very much focused on creating high-performance teams and developing, developing innovative talent strategies. In his current role at Equinox, he's over, responsible for all aspects of employee experience, which includes really the end-to-end -end global people strategy and, of course, includes DEI as well. He also serves as the executive sponsor for Equinox's Equality and Belonging Leadership Council. Now, prior to that, he was here in Canada. He was president of Adidas Canada and responsible for all of the operations around the Adidas and Reebok brands in this country. And he's also held leadership roles at KPMG, TD Bank, and Citigroup. In 2020 and, and 2021, two years running, Aleem was named by Yahoo Finance as a top 100 LGBT executive. He's lived and worked in six countries, if I'm not mistaken, 
which again brings a real fabric to this conversation. So he really brings a wealth of knowledge and lived experience uh, around advising and thinking about how companies can develop truly inclusive environments. So welcome and thank you for your endless journey at LaGuardia, I'm sure, today. Okay, moderating this evening's session is David Simmons, also standing at the back. He was the guy fanning out the dollars for Tainoing. Uh, David is Senior Vice President, Global Chief Communications and Sustainability Officer, Great West Life Co. and Canada Life. He's a member of the Executive Management Committee, which we've had lots of conversations about. Uh, David provides strategic partnership and advisory guidance to the CEO agenda, uh, and that includes as well diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, in 2015, David was named one of Canada's top 100 Black Canadians. And in 2021, he received the highly coveted Harry Jerome Leadership Award. We're proud to call David our immediate past president, and I am most fortunate to call him a friend. With that, I am very pleased to pass the podium to David and our uh, panelists. Thank you, Tanya. <clears throat> Hit the track, DJ. It was just a joke. That was a joke. Um, should I tell you now or later that I like to sit in the middle because it catches my better side? Just kidding. Just kidding. Oh. They're videotaping the event. Hold on, give me a second. This is one of the only Canadian club events where you can drink. So <laughs> Katie Duchek, who's in the audience, would tell you I take advantage of that from last year, don't you, Katie? One second. <clears throat> who's excited? <laughs> We're thrilled to be here. I'm gonna sit down for a second, but before we start, I just wanna reinforce the importance of tonight. When I saw Tainomi come in the room and the joy on people's faces, uh, despite me knowing how you identify, how you live your life, what you do in your bedroom, that joy that we saw today is why we have to continue to fight. And this is a fight. <laughs> this is a fight. Um, I want to remind everyone, and I thought about it, I thought, you know, I'm so grateful to Navigator for hosting us, and I want to be thoughtful and uh, respectful of their space. I thought about, do I tip a, do I tip a drag queen at Navigator? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yes, Jamie would want me to tip a drag queen at Navigator, because we have to thank a black woman. We have to thank a black trans woman. We have to thank black drag queens. Why? because this journey started because Marcy P. Johnson decided to pick up a rock and throw it at Stonewall and say enough is enough. So every time you see someone like Tainomi reach in that pocket and tip a drag queen. Thank you, Marcia. Um, I also, before we get into the panel, wanna thank builders. Tanya extended a thanks on behalf of the club to Jamie and to, uh, to the Canadian club. Jamie is not one for fanfare. He is not one for uh, obtuse thanks and, and fanning and fawning, but let me say that Jamie is a builder, and oftentimes uh, we don't articulate the building that he has done. So let me remind you that he has built much that we need to be thankful for. He built Navigator, a firm that is highly respected around the world for the advice, the care, and the protection it gives to individuals uh, when we have opinions that may not be mainstream. If we think about the work we do and the conversation we're having, the skills and the ability that he proliferates helps us have that fight. He's helped build institutions like the Canadian Club. Jamie was the first openly LGBT president of the club. He recruited Michael Bach to the board of the club. And I'll tell you, Michael's way more gay than Jamie. Um, uh, and because of Jamie, uh, I was nominated to the board of the club along with another 
LGBT and several other LGBT directors. And now it's commonplace. Joe gets to put up pictures of the club at diversity. And we're so proud of, we don't have to count anymore. We don't have to track. Uh, and that starts because someone had the courage to build. Um, he has built institutions that came in from the margin like Casey House. Uh, this weekend, I'll be in Stratford seeing uh, the uh, production of Casey and Diana that commemorates the Princess of Wales visit to Casey House. And the importance of that moment uh, is, is a reminder of the importance of pulling things in. And I have to say this, and I see many of his colleagues in the room, Jamie has built leaders that have gone on to uh, be in rooms and in spaces that we were formerly not welcome in. And I remember when I left this firm 15 years ago, he said to me, your presence is a reminder of our protest. So never back down and never be shy, never be scared to use the limp wrist, like go in there and do your job. So thank you to Jamie for all you've done for our club, uh, for me, for our careers, and for so many people on Bay Street. It's because of the feather boa that we get to wear our suits. So let's just give Navigator a round of applause. <clears throat> okay, where's my wine? There's some cute people in the audience. Can we just spend the next half an hour talking about them? About the cute people? No. Um, okay, um, there's many panelists here today, and all of you have different origin stories, different starting points, different perspectives. I'd love to learn more about that, um, where you started from. Uh, we know Pickering is a part of your story. Um, and, and, and what you're doing here today. Why don't we start with you, since we know sure. the Pickering Town Center is an important starting place. It all started in Pickering Town Center. No. Um, okay, origin story. And I'd ask David, where, what part of my origin story should I start from? Because I've got branches and branches of my, of my story. Simply put, I'm um, born in India, raised in Toronto. My mother's Muslim. My father is Hindu. And all of this comes into play into the intersections. Um, I, I uh, often say to people, I'll bet you that I am the most uneducated in this room. Um, and I say this because I, uh, I went to U of T, but I was poached in my first year. And so I never looked back. So I have a high school education. All of this builds. Um, that meant I started my career four years old, earlier than the rest of my peers and many others around me. And, and I didn't have the gray hair to help me look a little older than I was then. You know, wore the fake glasses to look a little older, so um, ageism. I'm brown, I'm female, uh, I am part of the 2SLGBT community, I'm a bisexual, which that in itself within the community, outside of the community has different experiences, and um, I'm sitting where I am despite all of that. Michael, tell us more about <clears throat> your origin story and, and what you're doing here today. I was born a poor black child in the Brewster, <laughs> no, sorry, that's him, someone else's story. Um, so born and raised in Toronto. Uh, super gay from a very young age. Like a lit, and Maya knows. Uh, Maya and Colleen, just uh, in case anyone, no one cares. Anyway, uh, we were in kindergarten together, so I've known these women for 12 years. Um, <laughs> Math is hard, um, but no, uh, and, and, and the story's gonna come out, so I'm just gonna say, Colleen was my first kiss. Yes, <laughs> and the reason why I'm gay. Uh, <laughs> she's that bad at it, just saying. Uh, no, I, uh, I, I came out at 16, it was 1987, not a great time to come out. 
Um, we were at the beginning of the HIV AIDS crisis. We were vilified as a community. Bisexuals didn't even exist then. So that was neat. Um, <laughs> and I didn't come out at work, believe it or not, I know this is gonna be a shock for somebody, until 1999, I was 30, wow. and I worked for a politician by the name of George Smitherman. And I know, I know, it's, it's as bad as you think it is. Um, but uh, I figured if George could be out to the world, then I could at least be out to my colleagues. And um, I came out, and of course, everyone was like, what? No, you are a home. Everyone knew. Like it was, um, and then in the past couple years, I've actually come out as gender nonconforming, which was a bit of a journey for me. Uh, in writing my, my second book, I started to explore my relationship with gender and what it meant. And uh, the transition into diversity work was a really natural one for me um, because I had sort of been doing LGBTQ2 plus work for a lot of years prior to that. And uh, that brings me to today. For those of you that don't know, Michael spent a number of years at KPMG, which is alarming. Yes. Um, I mean, For I work everyone. in insurance, but <laughs> I literally went to work today in this outfit in insurance. And I was like, hey, girl. <laughs> Somebody was like, what are you doing later? I was like, don't you wish to know. <laughs> I was at Equinox this morning, though. Good for you. So tell me about your story. Uh, far less exciting um, than, than Michael's, but we did work together at KPMG, so I can vouch for that. Um, so, yeah, I was born in Tanzania, and we moved out here when I was six. Um, it was tough because, you know, you're plucked out of a country that you, and I didn't speak English back then, right? So Swahili and Swahili wasn't really valuable here. So, you know, learning a new language, meeting new people, um, it, was, it was a lot. And although at six, I, you know, wasn't ready to come out, it was definitely something that was on my mind. Um, but I was, I would say, homophobic until I was about 13. And I think that sometimes you develop that as a defense mechanism. And then 13, uh, getting more curious. Browser history outed me um, with my mother, which was not pleasant. Um, she blamed it on the Gap, because I was, work I was working at the Gap at 16. And, um, it was the Sears was, catalog. Pickering Town Center? It wasn't Pickering Town oh. Center. It, it was on Queen Street. Um, I mean, she's partly right, uh, because... <laughs> yeah. Because I was comfortable, I think I was comfortable with the people that I was working with. And I think that continued. Um, I got fortunate that I worked in banks and I worked at KPMG and TD. Um, and I think organizations that really embrace you, uh, help you, you know, have the confidence to come out. Um, and then I've uh, traveled to different parts of the world. My husband's here with me uh, tonight, Kevin. We have uh, two kids, beautiful kids, eight and, uh, eight and five. And I think that's the point where I, I started realizing that I have to come out over and over again. Because I think when you have kids, the natural assumption is that you're straight. And so every time we're out together, sometimes he's my brother or people assume that, or we're just friends. So that process never really ends and it's tough. Yeah, when you, yeah. This is my partner. What kind of business do you run? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a number of us work at large organizations or um, have worked at large organizations or advise large organizations. Uh, as we think about um, what's happening in the world today, Jamie referenced what's happening south of the border, but we don't need to look south of the border to know that things are um, 
challenging for the the broad spectrum of inclusion and not just for queer people um, in the world. Um, many people might suggest that companies ought not play a role. Um, why is it important? Because I think all of us have worked at organizations that um, are quite declarative about inclusion. Why is it important for companies to to play a role in this space? Um, and uh, and what impact is it having? And I might finally start with you just because TD has been so at the forefront of, of queer issues for, for some time. I, I could give the cookie cutter response, it's good for business, but I'll make it even more specific to say I work in a technology department. And if you have a singular type of person that is building a product, how will it be received? Like we were at TD, we're very conscious that we want our organization and our colleagues to be reflective of the communities that we, we serve. And the, purely from a product development perspective, we need the diverse perspectives of those of the 2 LGBT community, of the indigenous community, of the black community, and on and on and on. It just makes, it's, it's um, we call it inclusive innovation. And that's very simply put from a business perspective, it just makes sense. It's like an HBI article. Inclusive innovation. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. I have a t-shirt. Do you? I do. <laughs> I might, so y- y- you worked in sport, um, you kind of work in sport by fitness, like if it's not fitness, it's life. Like I see it every day. Um, um, but you've also, you work in a space where um, it's almost, and I'm going to be a little offensive. The camera's on high. Um, it's like declaratively gay. Like when I was in Manhattan, I'd like walk into Bond Street Equinox and be like, oh my. Like it was like, it was like the sound of music. I was like, what is happening in here? The sound of grinder. I mean, it was crazy. So like, how do you like, so to, to, like, cause the bank, it's like, yeah, inclusive innovation. Like that's, that's great. But like, you're like, like, Hey, like, how do you do that? How do you manage that? You know what I mean by Hey, and then. How do you manage that? I, I think it's just like we have a large percentage of our employees that are that are out, and um, we've got many members. I mean, we're we're concentrated in New York. Equinox, for those of you that don't know, it's, it's fitness uh, clubs, but also hotels and SoulCycle and Blink and a couple other uh, companies. But we've got lots of LGBT uh, employees, and our members are are also. Uh, so we've got to, we've got to reflect the communities that we serve. And we have to we have to be authentic and we celebrate. Um, so there's uh, you know many times we're in states, um, i.e. Florida, where members have complaints because we've got trans employees, and it's important that our employees feel that we've got their back. Um, and so if there's a concern there, we will we will actually house cancel a member, even though they've been with us for 15 years, 20 years, and and they and they spend a ton, ton of money. Um, <laughs> Because if, if you don't have your team's back, there's no way that they're going to feel confident and be able to give back to the community. I think that's an important important point. Michael, I'll ask you because um, you probably have the loosest leash uh, on the panel currently. Um, what happens... The point he's making is that I'm sleeping with my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Himself. Um, I'm self-employed. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> Amazing sex. Michael! <laughs> Michael is a past executive member of the Canadian Club. Um, <laughs> what happens when when the the collision, like so so Disney, right? Like, what if you were advising? What would, is what Disney's doing right uh, from a from a from a the seat of an executive? We're all on Bay Street. Yep. G- give me the advice. Like, how would you advise a company that has to confront an issue like that uh, in today? Yeah. In, in all seriousness, I think we're a bit of bit of a pivotal moment 
um, and Disney's a perfect example. Target is another one. Yeah. I think Disney is doing the right thing. They're fighting back. Yeah. They've drawn a line in the sand. Could they do more? Absolutely. Um, but I think they are doing the right thing. They are being bullied by, um, I'm just, we're on television, so I'm not going to say the, the words, the line. Um, and they're being bullied because of their values and they're standing up for their values. I think Target is doing absolutely the wrong thing. I think their response was horrible. I think their response previously was horrible. If anybody doesn't know it, 2010, you can read it in my book. Um, uh, it, you know, they have a fair weather relationship with the two SLGBTQI plus communities and they are not living their values in this moment where they are taking items out of stores and they are trying to make some very loud objectors who are in the minority ultimately comfortable. And you don't get to have it both ways. Yeah. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So let me challenge you a little bit. Please. Um, on the minority point, mm -hmm. because it's, it's safe for us to do the right thing when it's a chorus of people who are on the margin. Um, and it's safe for us to convince executives and boards to do the right thing and say, well, they're on the margin. But leadership is about doing the right thing in the face of, of, of adversity. Of adversity. Yes. You know, I was here last night at Navigator. Jamie um, has released a book uh, that I haven't read yet, but I bought a copy. And, I, 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 and he referenced, you know, it was about, it's a, re a collection of his columns. And every, I don't know if you know Jamie writes columns for the Toronto Star. You should read them all. And he, Michael uh, Cook, the former editor, asked him, you know, what's one that kind of haunts you that you got wrong? And one of the examples he used was Donald, the election of Donald Trump. Mm. And he said, and don't quote me on this, um, that, that he thought, you know, Trump would be, you know, one thing and it turned into a whole other thing because of the digital appointments that Trump's made and the impact that those appointments are having generationally on the change in legislation and laws in the U.S. And we're seeing that. I just got a news alert as Tainomi was performing that uh, the Tennessee legislature has now passed that uh, anti-gender um, affirmation uh, therapy by supermajority so the governor can't veto it, right? Um, so I say that to say, what, what do you do when it is the majority? Like, do companies have to play a role? Like, because like, I'm at Target, shareholder value, all these sorts of, how do, you, how, do you, how do you push back against the argument that it's the majority, you gotta go with the majority? Well, I don't think it's the majority, first off. And I think that's an important point. If you look at uh, the polls, um, and I'm just able to reference one at the top of my head, um, there was a poll on uh, abortion, an American's approval of abortion. I I'm going to bring it back to Canada in a second. But 80% of Americans are supportive of a woman's right to choose. And incidentally, this is not about abortion. It's about whether or not a woman has control over her body. 80% um, of Americans support that. So the minority is driving a conversation. 20% of Americans, that is the minority. Yes, it's more than the population in Canada, but that's not the point. Um, my point, uh, though, is to bring it back to Canada and something that has happened in the States, and I think we need to be very wary of. And there's an article in the CBC, it came out a couple days ago, um, and I, it, it, there's a group, I'm forgetting their name, Liberty is in it. Um, you can find it on, on uh, CBC or just go to my Twitter, it's, it's on there. Um, follow me, I'm at the Michael Bach. Um, no, seriously though, this is a group that has come out and said that they want to reshape politics in Canada 
to be more conservative so that essentially they eradicate our population. So 2S LGBTQI plus people cease to exist. So women are at home, so that people of color are, are stuck back in any number of closets. Um, my point is that I think we need to be hyper vigilant about this. And this is where I take aim at the Democrats in the United States. And I would also say that anyone on the, the political side, uh, the left side of the spectrum, we are very good at not saying anything. We do it really well. And we can't do that anymore. And we need to aggressively fight to make sure that what has happened in the states where um, the legislatures uh, in the states and federally have been reshaped by a fringe movement. And we can't allow that to happen here. Bringing it back to employers, though, what are your values? You got to stick by your values, majority or not. And could it possibly mean that some organizations suffer financially? Yes. But are they your values or not? Um, to, the, to, to the corporate execs on the panel, um, uh, we often hear representation matters and inclusion matters. Uh, ERGs are often referenced as an important, uh, or business resource groups are an important tool. Are they working in your organizations? Uh, why or why not? And what advice do you have for the, for the room on how to make them more effective? Um, so I think they're vital. And um, what I've observed, whether it was my time at Adidas and, and now at Equinox, particularly after the tragic murder of, of George Floyd, um, the power that ERGs have to create change and create momentum in, in an organization and a sense of solidarity is, is super important. When I went to Adidas, I'm, I, you know, I haven't been a jock throughout my life. And so when I accepted the position and got to Germany, <laughs> I got to do that again. Um, I got to Germany. I got to Germany. Um, yeah, I didn't know anybody. Um, it was nice that that ERG reached out to me, and I felt a sense of community amongst them. And I think especially where we are now, um, when, as I mentioned, we've got trans employees that, in, that are in Florida that are concerned about their life that they can call a group and, and contact them. Um, and, and I think that it's also about celebration. It's all about um, creating awareness. Um, and uh, the, the thing is, though, there is a continuum. Uh, many people here from ERGs? No, not, not many people. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of concern around cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. in, in Canada, the US, and ERGs, when they focus so much on the activism side, and I think activism is important, but it's got to be done constructively. And when it focuses too much on the activism side, it creates psychological safety issues, not only for, for people that are in those groups, but also for leaders. And I think leaders then pull back because they're too scared of being canceled. And so you get divisiveness, divisiveness uh, inside of an organization. So I, I would encourage ERGs to focus more on carrying the culture, understanding where their advocacy can actually help improve the work experience and connect back to the, to the uh, member or the consumer experience. Yeah. Do you have any advice? I do. I've, uh, I've had the benefit and privilege of working at ERGs at various um, stages of maturity to the point where in my previous organization, it was a conversation of do we raise a pride flag or not? And we were trying to build an ERG from scratch. And so I've seen what it can do to help bring people together to now where we are at TD, which is very progressive. Like the, our ERGs are like top notch. 
But I think about the value that they bring. So you you'd mentioned it. You had mentioned it that um, um, I chair our two SLGBT women's uh, committee. That's an enterprise committee, and that's one thing because I'm a part of the community. I also chair for all of technology our Black Experience Committee, and what I'm seeing is um, so a few good things and a few things that I watch for and I'm worried about. Um, the great things are the conversation that's shifting is like ERGs. You're focused on representation. That's great, that's important. What you measure gets done. But we've started to shift the conversation around what's the measure of success from the eyes of executives who we want to come in and be allies and supporters of these ERGs, but are we also equally looking, and this maybe comes to a bit of what you're saying about, um, equally comes to what is the eyes of success, uh, in the eyes of success of the members that, of that ERG? Like it's not just about promoting every single person in that ERG, that that's a member of the community to the next level so we can get a representation numbers. That's not success. So we've, we've been spending a lot of time with the actual members to say, what's success for you? What do you want from this? Is it learning opportunities? And we try to balance um, in our ERGs to look at talent development, talent attraction, community. TD's philosophy is the three Cs, the customer, colleague, and community. And so we try to anchor our ERGs to say, are we having an equal focus on customer, colleagues, and community. To what, what concerns me about ERGs is um, a bit of emotional tax. Mm -hmm. And I'll speak about this particularly from the black pillar, but it is also from the 2SLGBT community, is that there is a, a, the people that are members of the community that are trying to get the attention to say, please treat us with equality, are the same members that are having to constantly sit on panels, that are same members that are constantly having to put on a dog and pony show. Are they they're the ones that are showcased in the videos that are meant to be the emotional piece. Constantly having to be vulnerable, have, having to be raw. And so some of that from, there, there's a fear that the executives on the outside that are meant to be allies are going, okay, here we go again. And then internally, members of the community are, are, are constantly having to put their blood, sweat, and tears to help try to drive movement. And so this is where we're spending, again, a lot of time to say, what can we do to build organic um, allyship, organic support, where through storytelling is one thing, but where can we have more allies in chair positions, and that's okay, and that's welcome. So I am not black, but I chair the black committee, and I've spent a lot of time with my committee to say, why have I done that? And I've done that, and I, I say it openly to encourage others. I identify as, as I do, and I've shared how I do. I always wanted allies. I always wanted people to help lift me up. I've reached a point in my career and in my personal confidence to say, well, what am I doing as an ally to others? And so it's for that reason that I actively put up my hand to say, I'd like to chair the black committee. And I think it's actually easier for me because I am not someone that is black, that when I go in and I talk to our C-suite, it is from a point of independence, not a personal benefit perspective that I'm speaking on behalf of the black community. And I, I think that that's an interesting one because at first there was resistance to say, you're not black. You don't know my experience. But at the same time, now there's a huge welcome to say you can say the things that I can't say because it would, it would seem like it's very selfish. Yeah. It, in my previous company, we used to co-chair all of our ERGs where we had one identified co-chair and one allied co-chair. Wow. And it was a huge benefit. I was involved in both the black ERG and the yeah. LGBT ERG. And it was a huge benefit to have that person to say, you go in and, and, and push that issue because I'm That's exhausted. Right. Like when George yeah. Floyd was murdered, I was like, I can't do this right Oh my now. gosh. I'm going to have my colleague do it. Yeah. That's good advice. We are out of time. Like I've already gone over, but everyone's having a good time. Um, I might take one or two just questions from the audience if there are any, but if not, we might go to 
And if there are questions, one question, yeah. For those who have the next, so the next generation of young people that are coming up who identify as 2SLGBTQ+, um, just comment on what do they have to look forward to and what are the barriers that they're still going to face? Why did everyone just look at me? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I think the younger generation doesn't give a damn, and they're completely unapologetic. There was a Gallup poll that looked at uh, self-identification of sexuality and gender, and then cross-segmented by age. And what they found was that the traditionalists, which are largely over 80 at this point, like 1.2% identified as 2S LGBTQI+, and it was over 20% for Gen Z, uh -huh. which is the they're, I think, 18 and above, 18 to 26 at this point. Um, I think they, as a generation, are, are really not caring what other people think. I, I worry, though, that they're going to run into the wall of reality and life is going to kick them in the teeth. And as much as it, they were in a safe space in their, in their high school and their college and university to explore their gender and their sexuality, they're going into a workplace that is not going to be as accepting. And I'm very concerned about that. Um, I mean, I have said this before, that uh, there is a war against trans and gender diverse people right now. And I'm very, very troubled by that. If I could just add a little bit, because I think I'd, mine is probably similar to that. And, and to Aleem, what you had said, that the younger generation is about, and I think at TD now, 30% identify as part of the community or, or um, bisexual, pansexual. And the, the piece, when I speak to the younger generation, I love saying that there is a younger generation other than me. This is so cool. Um, is the, it's, isn't it? I'm a millennial. Just want you to know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yay. <laughs> it, it's the piece around when you, when you speak to the, the next generation, it is very activism mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It is very combative. It's very much so I will show them. And that worries me a little bit to say we've made a lot of progress by actually in inclusivity being both ways. Mm -hmm. Us pulling people into the community and others bringing, bringing the community along with them. And just being mindful of that, that as we're starting, the ERGs that we are establishing now, how do we make sure that there's a legacy of inclusivity both ways? I, I would just add um, maybe a, a bit more optimistic point of view. Uh, I, I think that there's more choice now um, in, in our labor market. And uh, particularly as, you know, with, with remote work, borders have sort of collapsed in a sense. And I would, I would tell those young people to look for opportunities where um, they are celebrated, not tolerated. That's something I learned from Ed Clark when I was at yeah. PD. Um, and I, I, I think they have power. And, and they should seize that power. And they have social media. And they should use that um, as not a weapon, but as an opportunity to elevate themselves. Yeah. Nice. We'll do Katie and Anthony, and then I'm going to Call it because Tainomi wants a drink. <laughs> so as a mom of four kids, I totally agree with you. The next generation will not have tolerance for, uh, for what we're dealing with. Um, and I think the fundamental difference is our children. I have four children. I'm a mom of four kids. 
and they were raised in the age of the internet, which is completely open, Mm. open to Mm -hmm. explore, open to be, uh, versus we were all raised in a fixed mindset world of religion, rule of law, your your physical community, et cetera. My question, and you've touched on this in the last part of the conversation, is around your own emotional well-being. So how do you decompress? How do you not take on the emotional burden of the world um, or of all of these issues so that you can remain your best self and the most grounded self that you are? How do you care for yourself emotionally? Uh, Honey motherfucking DJ. For me, um, I've found fitness to be uh, to be really important. Mental health, anxiety. I mean, my dog knows far too much about my life, um, but he won't repeat it. Um, but I, I think fi- finding an outlet to invest in yourself is is super important. Whether that's fitness, whether that's cooking, whatever whatever it is, um, prioritizing yourself is important. If if you can't be strong yourself, you can't really be there for others as much. Uh- I have, maybe I should learn from you. Um, I came home from speaking at a black event last night. I came home and I cried. I don't actually, I let my emotion, so I give myself the time to cry, I do, all way too often. But I use that as my fuel as to why I'm doing this. And then it's just that one email that comes from that one person, whether they are part of my community or the community that I'm supporting that says, here's what you're, you being on a stage being vulnerable about talking about your health issues or this or that made this people coming out to you and saying i came out because of you that's all it takes so find the moment to cry invest in kleenex and mm-hmm. use that i use that as fuel mm-hmm. i drink no no terrible message um, <laughs> no i'm a I'm very careful about taking care of my own mental well-being. Um, I, I would say that in my 20s, I was a very angry human being uh, because of the homophobia and transphobia that I faced as a young person. It propelled me to do the work that I do, but that is only going to take you so far. And um, so now I do a lot of self-care. Um, I have learned to step back and not take on other people's issues. I got old, which is a, I mean, other than, you know. You're not a millennial. I'm not, (laughs) bitch. (laughs) That was some shade. You know. (laughs) I am a Gen X. Um, And I got old and that actually, in all seriousness, I stopped caring. If you have a problem with the fact that I'm gay and gender nonconforming, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. I do not. <laughs> I, might, I, might add, I might just add one thing to, to Katie's question because I think it's important. We shared earlier, you shared your background um, uh, as, a, as a Hindu, with a Hindu parent. I was raised in the AME church. I talk about that very often. And I haven't let go of my faith and owning my racial identity and my sexual identity. Um, and that is so important uh-huh. because it's mine. Uh-huh. Um, and I think whatever is yours, when you come into this world, you ought not let someone take it from you. And so whatever that is, hold on to it. I was in Fire Island a few years ago, um, which <laughs> is what? so wonderful. We were working out at the gym and we went back to our house and I was reading Dance from the Dance. I recommend you not read Dance from the Dance in Fire Island. <laughs> but there were eight 
cisgendered male identified gay men in a pool, fully clothed while in Speedos. And <laughs> we were talking about how we were self-actualized. We were all in leadership roles or running our own businesses, had partners and families and these types of things. Well, I was a little, you know, I'm whatever, it's fine. Um, and I started crying in the pool, to your point. Yeah. And seven other men who I care about deeply held each other in this pool. And we talked about, because Dance from the Dance was like wet and pay dripped, it was like a movie scene, on the pool deck, that it, that experience that we were having mm -hmm. all on prep, thank you, Gilead, um, <laughs> was stolen. I knew I'd seen this movie. Was, but, it, but, but it was stolen from a generation. Yeah. And that because of that, the privilege that we had, and we were racialized, you know, we, the privilege that we had, we had to continue to give each other that, that communion, mm -hmm. as I would call it, because of the experience I had growing up. So I would just say to all of us in the room who are queer identified, don't let the world take those spaces and those experiences from us. Because as Jamie said to me once, our presence is a reminder of the power of protest. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So I, I have a question either for Michael or Aleem. So I spent eight years living in, in the U.S. and just recently moved back to Canada. Um, and I have a belief, but I may not be right because I'm not a lawyer, that there are greater rights for people in Canada than in the U.S. From the 100%. And so when we talk about that war, one of my concerns, I'm not sure there's people listen to the Front Burner podcast, but on Monday they covered... You know, is what we were referring to, Tanya. Yeah. Anyway, it's crazy that there are people in Canada that are trying to import this stuff. So just, you, Michael, you talk about the fact that we need to be prepared for war, but what do we need to do? Because I don't want that stuff creeping into this country because mm -hmm. this country is an amazing country. So just any advice to help us get activated and support that? Guns. No. <laughs> um, drag queens with guns. Oh, wow, that would be messy. Um, no, I, uh, so you're right. Um, in most states, you can be fired because someone doesn't like your tie, let alone being 2SLGBTQI. There's no protections under law in the US. Um, and absolutely, this there is a desire by a fringe minority that wants to import that into Canada. I think we have to be proactive about it. We have to be engaged. Um, how many of you have engaged with uh, a city of Toronto politician, whoever you would vote for, who's running? How many of you have engaged? That is not enough hands. I don't care who you vote for, Olivia Chow. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, vote for who you want to vote for, but you have to be engaged. And if you don't vote, shame on you. That's the only real fulcrum we have to affect change is to be involved. And if you're not involved, you have to accept the consequences. We're gonna drink, Katie. Last We're gonna drink, Katie. Don't. I, I, last word I would just say is don't take your rights for granted. Hello. Rights can Amen. be taken away. Absolutely. One of the organizations that we need to bring into this conversation is Kids Help Phone and Kathy Hay, the CEO, who posted beautifully on LinkedIn earlier this week. Um, I'm writing a book. I do not know whether I'm going to publish it or not, but I've interviewed Kathy. And of the 14 million calls that went into Kids Help Phone, which is Canada's suicide youth prevention line, 
54% identify as LGBT. Wow. That's the fact. And 68% of their text line identifies LGBT, so I think wow. you're right. Um, let's do something about it. I think that's the lesson from today. So thank you guys for being here, for being uh, here with us to celebrate Pride. Thank you to our panelists for joining us and sharing their stories so openly and authentically. Thank you to the Canadian Bankers Association. Anthony, thank you for your partnership. It's incredible. We appreciate it. Um, thank you to Tainomi. Uh, thank you to the club. Thank you to Colleen, staff, the AV team. Um, I'd like to remind you, because I have to remind you, June 8th, we have our energy future at the Royal York. It'll be hosted by uh, Joe. And on June 13th, John Ferguson, the president and CEO of Pure Later, will be with us again. I would also like to thank our host for today, our partner, um, a friend, a colleague, Jamie Watt and Navigator for hosting us today. Jamie, I'll welcome you back to close this out. I, uh, I think they're gonna have to reprint the Guinness Book of World Records for the most thank yous, but uh, having said that, we really have to thank the amazing David Simmons. Right? <laughs> I'm just gonna hijack the agenda for three minutes. That's all it's gonna take. A year ago, I was dying of kidney disease and I got a kidney transplant. And today, I have a feeling of well-being of which I have no memory. I can never remember feeling as well as I do. And today, if I went to a new doctor who I'd never seen before, and uh, I didn't tell her that I had a kidney transplant, she ran my blood panel, totally normal. If she did a physical examination, so other than a scar, totally normal. The only way she would know that I had a transplant was to take an x-ray, because those crappy old kidneys of mine are about this big, and I had a great new one right here. And uh, so it's pretty amazing. Top 2% result possible, Toronto, the best place in the world to have your kidney transplanted. And so um, because of that, I made a promise that I would, uh, when I had a chance to speak to groups like this, uh, make a pitch. And the pitch is a simple one. Um, I was lucky enough to get my kidney for my partner. He is a hero, a living donor, who gave one of his kidneys to me. And he gave me a really good Cracker Jack kidney. Um, <laughs> but that only happens about 6% of the time. And if that doesn't happen, you have to wait. And right now in Canada, you have to wait 11 years on average. Depends on your blood type. Sometimes nine, sometimes up to 11 years. And that means 11 years of dialysis, and that means 25 hours a week at the hospital. Essentially no travel, difficult to work. And um, that's just because we don't have enough kidneys. We don't have enough organs. Because for every 100 organs that are, are, are donated, only but one is any good. Because if you think about it, most people are old or sick, have cancer, whatever, those organs are. It's really only catastrophic death that produces organs. And when they put helmets on motorcycles, the uh, drivers, the, the available organs went down. Um, so we simply need more organs. And uh, so if you have religious objections, and I know some people do, if you're weirded out by it, and I understand that, but if you don't, would you take two minutes and go to beadonor.ca? Uh, the system is a bit crappy. I'm working, this office is working to fix it, have a different legislation, but at the moment, if you just go to beadonor.ca and register your wishes and talk to your families, I only want someone else to have the same chance that I had and to be able to go um, from, the, the transplant patients are the sickest patients in a hospital that don't die. But when it's over, you have an amazing life. And I just want other people to have that chance. So if I asked you to do that, that'd be wonderful. I, um, 
I launched my first book yesterday. It's called uh, What I Wish I Said, and it's a collection of 48 of my columns that I've written. I write a weekly column, and uh, in each one of them, I critique myself, uh, which is, interesting enough, something that no columnist has ever done. They shoot their mouths off and never take accountability, uh, and in, in each one, I, I, I summarize at the end, like with egg on my face or you know, whatever I got it right or wrong. And so um, it's, it's kind of an interesting book. Uh, it, it, I, if you're interested in buying it, it's $26.95. We're selling them at the door. I'll sign them for you. And, um, or not. Um, but the, one of the, one, the first ones in the, um, uh, the equality section is uh, America's, entitled America's Anti-LGBTQ Plus uh, Bills Are Not What They Appear to Be, Don't Look Away. And I critique myself by saying I wish I was, I was wrong. I won't take your time and read much of the book, but if you'd let me read you the last four, par <clears throat> sorry, the last four paragraphs. And the last four paragraphs of the book uh, go like this. Paul Dewar, by the way, was a, for those who don't know, was a very well-known New Democrat and very popular New Democrat member of parliament in Ottawa. He represented an Ottawa riding. And this, this is what I write in the last four paragraphs of the book. In the late Paul Dewar's final statement to Canadians, he's told us that he saw his illness as a gift. I never truly understood his words until I was lying by myself in an ICU bed with an IV tube in each of my arms. But now I do. The finest gifts fill you with a sense of awe, humility, and renewed purpose. And today I have a new life because the man I love risked his. You can't quantify this feeling of gratitude or touch it or hold it in your hand. You can live your life out though with humility and renewed purpose and awe. You can give back, you can tell your story and you can keep the gift alive. So thank you very much. 26.95, all the proceeds. Here's a pitch. All the proceeds are going to the Center for a Living Donation. All my, all my royalties are going to the Center for a Living Donation at UHN. So thank you very much. Thank you for letting me be a donor.ca.